0: All right, let's get our heads into the game, into our story as we'll process it from God's Word this morning. And let's do that by asking ourselves one question, one of my favorite icebreaker group discussion questions. Some of you know what's coming, and the beauty is you can roll your eyes all you want to, and I can't see them. You can let out that groan, and I can't hear it, and it's the last time you have to hear it from me. I love this question for a number of reasons. The biggest of which is that I need this question. It's a question I find myself asking more often, perhaps not often enough, not just in a group setting, but as I enter every day. Here's the question. What percentage of me is here today, right now, right here? And where's the rest of me? How much are you fully engaged in a healthy and positive way in the here and now? And what is it that is keeping you from it? Most of us, more than we want to admit, and sometimes more than we even realize, struggle with being fully fully present and fully engaged, right? There are things weighing on our minds, claiming space in our heads. They're not just living there rent free. They're actually making you pay to live in your head. Charging you big time for, for some of us extortion-level toll-fee payments to live in my head. What happens in our heads is like what sometimes happens to my computer, as I understand it, when I haven't fully shut down programs for a while. They're still operating in the background. Those thoughts are using up processing power and reducing our performance, right? We don't even necessarily know what they are. On our computer, we have to go to the task manager, identify them, and shut them down. But in life, it's not quite that easy. You can't just click, quit. So, what percent of you is here today? And where is the rest of you? What is it that is keeping you from being fully here and fully engaged. We're in our final teaching today from the life of King David. Turn in your bibles to the book of 2nd Samuel, the second book of Samuel, chapter 12 in the Old Testament, the pre-Jesus part of the Bible, the 10th book of the Bible. Turn it in it in your bible or your bible app or download a bible app or In your church online platform, click on the Bible section on the bottom right-hand corner. This is not the end of David's story. It's just the end of our time engaging it together. Actually, it's not even close to the end of David's story. David is about 45 years old, and he lives to about 70, so it's just over half. It's 15 years into his reign as king, which lasts for... Forty years, so he still has more than half of his reign to go. And yet, the way the entire rest of David's life is recorded in 2 Samuel, it's written showing how the consequence of this choice affected the rest of his life. You can only make sense of the rest of David's story as you understand what happens in this episode that we began last week in chapter 11. But it's not just about the future. It's about the now this experience has claimed space in David's head way more than anyone knew, perhaps even way more than David realized. One disastrous decision to disengage, to stay home from the battle, to succumb to one of the dark threads of his inner person that he had never fully come to terms with, and then in trying to cover up led to betrayal and ultimately murder, David and Bathsheba. But it's finally over. The evidence is buried. David thinks it's in the past and that he can just get on with life. Verse 26 of chapter 11, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Done. Dodge the bullet. Time to move on. But a dark, dark cloud, a really dark cloud, comes onto the horizon in the story with one little line. Chapter 11 ends with this statement, but... The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Uh Uh-oh. God is not happy. It's a signal. It's a warning to us as we read the story that maybe it's not as simple as just getting on with it. We're let in on this truth, but David doesn't yet know it. As we come to chapter 12, God takes over the story. And shows us how he wants to take over in us, for us, to help us come back to being fully present and fully engaged. Verse chapter 12 begins with this statement The Lord sent Nathan to David. God does what? God sent Nathan. Is that ringing bells? What was the key verb, the key action word in chapter 11? Sent. David uses his authority, his power, to send, to control the narrative. He sends his army to war without him. He sends a servant to find out who this woman is. He sends another servant to take Bathsheba. He sends a messenger to get Joab to send send Uriah to him, sending Uriah back with a message that will get him killed. David sends to control the narrative and take charge of the situation. As David sends, things just go from bad to worse for others. But for David, it's working out okay. And then God, a displeased God, a very not happy God takes over. God sent Nathan. Remember Nathan? In chapter 7, Nathan Nathan is God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, the one who had taken over the role of Samuel in David's life, who who brings David God's perspective, how God sees things and how, and and, and he reminds David of God's word. He gives them God's directives, what God expects David to do. Nathan's the guy who David consulted about his plans to build the temple, and and who told David of God's much bigger plans and promises for David. Through Nathan, God comes in and he claims space in David's head. Do you ever resent that God wants to claim space in your head? Isn't that why we sometimes tune out? Isn't that the source of a lot of our headspace issues? We we want to give God some headspace. We we feel we need to give God some, but God actually tends to mess up our headspace even more. So how's this going to work? Well, it begins with a confrontation. Not immediately after David's sin. It's a whole year down the road from David's sin. Things are back to normal, at least outwardly. The baby's born. Healthy. Can can you imagine how much headspace was claimed for nine months in David's head and in Bathsheba's head about whether this baby is going to be normal? Or would God judge what they did with an unhealthy baby? But it's healthy. And David is starting to believe that he really has it all under control. Back in the groove. Or is it? God's confrontation through his prophet is not immediate, and it's not head-on. You know, when we think of prophets, we we tend to think of people who declare the truth head-on, right? Clear, direct, blunt, black and white. Folks, God has way more tools in his toolbox than, than that. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David with a dilemma. Sort of, remember Columbo? Sort of Columbo style that he wants David's opinion about. David, got a tough one here. I I need your perspective on it. I I need to make sure we're on the same page. Because in the end, you're going to have to deal with it or at least sign off on it. For David, it's like, okay, teaming up with God's prophet. I, I really am back on the game. It's all good. The Lord sent Nathan to David... When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It it was like a daughter to him. Well, He gets right to David's heart with that one, doesn't he? God appeals to David's heart as a shepherd, as a shepherd leader, and as one who has endured the put-downs of being just a shepherd. But Nathan goes on. No, a traveler came to the rich man, but, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David's been there. He warded off bandits and lions who were trying to rob his sheep, and probably even uh, marauders to protect his sheep. And although we know of the times that he won, you've got to realize David also remembered some that he lost. Nathan, God has David right where he wants him. David is all there. Or is he? Nathan doesn't even have to ask David, what do I do about this? David just jumps in quickly. Too quickly, maybe? Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had No pity. What's David's immediate reaction? David burned with anger. Really? No clarifying questions? No, what's the other side of the story? Did this man owe the rich man something? Just boom, David burned with anger. Hey, Dave, that's that's a pretty quick, pretty strong reaction, isn't it? Is there more going on in your head than you want to admit? David knows God's law in detail. Exodus chapter 22 is all about property law. It's not just thou shalt not steal, it gave some clear penalties for those who stole, especially livestock. If an ox was stolen, it had to be paid back with five oxen. If a sheep was stolen, the law said it had to be repaid with four sheep. How many sheep? sheep. Remember that. David was right, and David was on it. But before he gives the law, he gives his anger response. This man must die. The law didn't say that. Is David perhaps doing what psychologists call projecting without realizing it? He's big, really big on justice. This guy's gotta pay, big time. But the price he wants this man to pay, death, is the price David should have paid for what he did. In David's head, it's not all over. It's claiming space in his head that he does not even realize. Can you see how creative God is? How subtle God is just as creative and just as subtle in his approach with us in dealing with our sin as the serpent in the garden was when he drew us into sin. And then Nathan the prophet is forced to say what he has dreaded saying from the time God drew him into the circle on this issue. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, David, it's you. You are that man. David had just pronounced his own judgment. Now let's freeze it right there. How do you hear Nathan saying what he says? What's his tone of voice? I think we may tend to hear it, perhaps because it's the way we would do it if we spoke to a person of power and privilege. Gotcha. Busted. And as we tell the story later, we'd say, yes. Finishing it off with, I had him and just reeled him in. I put him in his place. Because Nathan's a prophet, and prophets are arrogant yellers, angry white men. We might assume Nathan says it with a cold, harsh, judgmental aggressively and forcefully matching David's intensity. No, no, no. As I put this story in light of, uh, of the whole story in this episode, the story of David and the bigger story, I'm absolutely convinced that Nathan says it quietly, softly, probably close to tears with his voice breaking up. David, It's you, in love, with grief, like Jesus crying in love over the city of Jerusalem the last few days before his death, David. This man is you. He has no pleasure in catching David off guard. He is sick with love. Love for David, love for God, and love for God's people. So how do we know that this situation has been taking up space in David's head, even though on the outside he's just moving on? Well, his projection and overreaction signaled it, it, right? But more significantly, David writes several psalms, several of the most significant psalms in the entire collection of psalms about this Experience. In 2 Samuel, we have the observable facts of the story. But in the two psalms that David writes, after this experience is over, David shares what had been going on in his, in his head and in his heart that for that whole year that he wouldn't allow to come to the surface. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Psalm 51 verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. It's been taking up space in my head all year long. See the dilemma? His commitment, his heart's desire, as we know from his theme verse, I have set the Lord always before me. And now this, this stupid, awful thing he got sucked into when he dropped his guard is claiming that space he had once given over to God. My sin Is always before me. It is far from over in David's head. Psalm 32 is the other psalm where he talks about this in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silent, didn't say anything about it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That's what's really been going on all year long. So how do I bring myself fully here, fully engaged, number one, I need to recognize, allow myself to see the things that are claiming space in my head, some of which are because of things I have done or not done and promised to do, some of the things I've said or not said but have thought more times than we want to admit. Those things that are keeping me Those things are the the things that are keeping me from being able to be fully present and fully engaged. Some of those things people have tried to point out to you. Some of them you fear that people might have seen or heard about because of something that is said, and you're wondering if it's like, do they know what I did? And you're reacting. It's claiming space in your head, making you pay a big price, and it's coming out in a judgmental spirit, a distancing and disengagement Uh, disengagement in relationships, fear about what people might be thinking about you. Perhaps some of those things surfaced as you you did your daily inventory this last week, right? Or perhaps you avoided doing a daily inventory because you knew what might surface. But David's not done. He's actually just started sharing God's heart. In the middle of verse 7, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's whole house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. God saw. God knows. God kept a record of and reminds David of every single little detail. At some point it's like, stop. I know. You don't have to throw it in my face. But he does. No sugar coating. You killed. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Why does he have to repeat it all? To put us down? No. To get us to see how all of those things are actually shutting us down and keeping us from being fully engaged because we have not yet named them before God and someone else for what they really are. But Nathan is still not finished. He now talks in detail about the real-life consequences that David will experience, which, by the way, are not nearly as severe as what David would have done to this man, right? He would have killed him. Consequences that are a summary of what David's road will be like the rest of his life, a summary of what chapters 13 to 20 of 2 Samuel Will describe forever recorded in the history of God's story. Verse 10 Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord said. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Let's just summarize what the future of David looked like. The sword never departs. From his house, three of David's sons would die violent deaths. Three died a violent death, including his favorite son Absalom. Oh, remember the four sheep, the fourfold restitution David had prescribed for the man in the story. The baby that is born to him and Bathsheba will die. Four of his sons taken. And Absalom, David's golden boy son, steals from David the throne and flaunts it by having sexual relations with David's concubines in broad daylight before all Israel. Folks, consequences are real. The choices we make in order to free ourselves from constraints, way more than we realize, often bring on constraints of their own. You reap what you sow, and you reap more than you sow, is what the Bible says. And, Dave, and boy did David reap. Absalom, his favorite son, rebels, claims his throne. There's murder in his family. He has to live on the run once again for most of the latter years of his reign. Just one more thing we have to come back to in Nathan the prophet's confrontation. Listen to how God views what David had done? Verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord? And later on he says, you despised me by by taking Uriah's wife. How does God view what David had done in every one of his sins? You despised me. You treated lightly, disrespectfully the word of the Lord. It was not about breaking a rule. That's what we focus on, isn't it? I didn't break the law. Or it's just a rule. Rules are stupid. We have to get past the rules. We don't want a rule-driven God. Well, David did break a law, but with God, the law was simply an outward behavior that reflected an inner disposition, an attitude toward God. David, you can't say you love me, set me before you, if you take lightly in disrespect and blow off My word, my word that is designed to protect you. David, do you see what you did is an insult to me for everything I have given you and all I still want to give you? It's why David says in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Is David minimizing the hurt he caused people? No, not at all. What he's acknowledging is that the hurt he caused others is rooted in the fact that he blew off, took lightly, God's Word. He's acknowledged that if he had truly loved God with all his heart, had truly put God before him and not his personal desires, his needs, ahead of his love for God, he would never have created the carnage that his life is and his life has created. So let's just summarize what this first step is. Recognize what it's all about. It's about facing and owning, and it has two sides. It's it's recognizing the kinds of things, things I've done, things I'm demanding, things I'm desiring that are less than what God desires, and and taking up space in my head, and exacting a price in myself and my relationship with God and in my family and in my workplace. Recognizing that the core issue, though, is not those needs, desires, legitimately, though they may be, it's not whether those things I've done are understandable or explainable, not whether I deserve better than what I got. Those, those rationalizations just take up more headspace, slow down the operating system even more. The core issue behind those sins is the overarching sin they expose. I have not loved God first and love God most, more than myself. I have desired feeling good, looking good more than I have desired loving God. And in doing that, I have been using God, not loving God, presuming on God, not following God. So recognize openly, in other words, with someone else. There's got to be a Nathan, because we, we often only become fully aware of something when we hear ourselves speak it to someone. It's only then that we see how much space it's been taking up. That's why God uses Nathan. God God could have come to David himself one-on-one instead of coming to Nathan to go to David, but for David to to fully recognize it, he needs someone to speak it, to hear from, and he needs to speak it to someone else, and he needs to be accountable with someone for following through on it. That's why things like, recovery groups, and and like our freedom sessions are really, really important. What does David do when he's busted? One simple line. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See how it's the, the simple bullet point lines that drive this story? What David did displeased God. Boom. God sends Nathan. You are the man, and now I have sinned against God. Actually, in the Hebrew language in which this was originally written, it's just two words. I have sinned against God. Some people read that and say, really, David? Just one line? That's all you got? How authentic is that? Oh, yes, it's just two words. But what God sees in these two words is not simplicity, not surface. God sees authenticity. No explaining it away with more words. No excusing himself. No more denial. No justifying, no flowery language to make my confession look spiritual. Not even asking for forgiveness or a second chance. I have sinned. Against the Lord. In in the Psalms, when he talks about this, David talks more about what he meant by those two words I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 32, verse 5, it says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity anymore. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And in, in Psalm 51, it goes even further. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There was a dark side to me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. I knew it, but I didn't follow it. And then... In verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Verse 17 is probably the the best summary of of step two of becoming fully aware and fully engaged. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. It's not, in other words, it's not just recognizing with openness. That may be cathartic, but it's not restoring. Recognize in openness and then repent in brokenness. Let's just talk for a minute what David means when he says broken. Broken is not what, not what God did to him. Broken is what he chooses. So let's talk first about what he does not mean. He does not mean hurt. When we say, I'm so broken, what we usually mean, I'm, I'm really hurting. Our feelings are hurt. What was said broke my spirit? Well, it hurt your feelings, but it didn't break your spirit. It actually probably hardened your spirit to people and to God. Brokenness is a posture we choose A perspective we choose about ourselves. It's it's moving from saying that's not really who I am to a grieving admission that what I did and what I said surfaces who I really am. That is how we tend to repent, isn't it? I'm sorry that that's not who I really am. That's not repentance. That's just trying to make ourselves look good in spite of what we did. Brokenness is a posture that chooses to move from that's not really who I am, to admitting and grieving that I am the kind of person who does such things. Yes, you're right. I am that man. It's not just I am broken. It's I will be broken. A broken spirit And, just saying the same thing in different words, a contrite heart. That word contrite actually literally means crushed, torn down. It's the first step of our renovation project. Ripping up, tearing down, taking apart completely the image that we have tried to create about ourselves. Going back to zero in my heart about myself. So I can be rebuilt by God. God rebuilds only as I go back to zero, not offering him all the things I think I can do that I should do, but offering him him a zero-based heart. Will I love the God who loves me more than I love myself and the things that I want God to see in me? Will I desire the God who desires me more than the things that I am coming to him for? The things my desires are telling me that I need? No, no, that's not back to zero. That's coming to God with an agenda. And that's where David allows God to take his heart. It's no longer David the king. It's no longer David God's anointed. It's no longer David in charge. David who people look up to and admire. It's David the broken fully broken, but in the hands of a grieved God. I have sinned against the Lord. And back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then Nathan gives him the rest of the story. Chapter 12, in the middle of verse 13, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing This you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. And he did. It's recorded in verses 15 to 19. But picking it up in verse 20, after it's all over. Then David got up from the ground. After he washed, he put on lotion, changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way while the child was alive? You fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not go to me. And then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went into her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. I love that. I love it. David really does know his God. He has grieved God and has owned his grief and accepted the painful consequences. But he knows that those consequences are are less than what he deserved. He deserved to die. For the sins that David committed, adultery and murder, there was no sacrifice. David knows that with God, grief is a love word. That a grieved God must also be a gracious God. Not only does David not die, but God gives he and Bathsheba another son. The son that will build the temple. The son that, although very human, will lead with love and wisdom. Solomon. And so David is drawn by God into step three. Be revived in hope. It's not a step David takes. It's a step God pulls him into. As David takes the step of being broken in Psalm 51 he expresses it in a prayer he says restore to me verse 12 restore to me the joy of your salvation I love the way the New English translation puts it let me again experience the joy of being delivered by you of what of my salvation That's the way we say it, isn't it? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. No, 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 no. Your salvation. Restore to me the freedom and joy of allowing you to take charge, doing things your way, letting the chips fall where they may, believing that you are good, and in spite of what feels like in the moment, you will restore me. It's called open arms, controlling only one thing. The one thing I can control, myself. So, yes, this week I did watch enough March Madness NCAA basketball playoffs to get my fill. And LaDonna watched enough to be able to mock some of the predictable, cliche interview comments after the games. But some of them are so so true. Like, like two different interviews I watched, different games, one with a winning coach and another one with a player from the winning team. They were each asked some version of the same question. So how do you how did you do it? What was the secret? And the answer in both cases was, well, the number one thing we talked about before the game. Let's just focus on what we can control. There's only one thing I can control myself, how I see things, how I respond to things, regardless of whether God allows my child, whatever my baby is that I feel I need to live he is still a gracious God who, as we recognize with openness, repent in brokenness, he will revive us and bring back life in us with hope. In verse 30, uh, verses 10 and 11 of, of chapter 30 or of this of Psalm 32, David puts it this way: Many are the woes of the wicked, and that is me. But the Lord's Unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. And trust is not claiming something that I think I need from God. Trust is surrendering to God, to his perspectives, in his directions, believing that God is going to make it work well, which I did not do, David is acknowledging. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, all you who are upright in heart. Recognize with openness, repent in brokenness, be revived, restored to life in hope. Why? So, so, So we will not be shaken. David's theme verse. By the way, some of you who know David's story have asked the question is, now, So, is the verse you chose to look through the, at the life of David, I will set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Is that really a, the best statement to describe the secret to David's heart, his outlook on life? Well, the reason I chose it is that he uses that not be shaken line in two different psalms. In Psalm 16, in his early life, when for years he was running from Saul, hiding, Fleeing, it was his statement of hope. I will set the Lord always before me, because he is but my right hand, I will not be shaken. The other psalm that has this statement is Psalm 62, which is written during his other period of running and waiting and hiding for years at the end of his life from his son Absalom. David, um, in Psalm 62, it says this, truly, my soul finds its rest in God. Even when I'm running, my salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. David is, once again, or should we say, David is still living in hope. Not be shaken does not mean never rattled, never discouraged, never adrift. It means seeing life beyond what I am going through now. And because of a God who is the God of life, he is the God of hope. In both not be shaken Psalms, David gives himself to live in the reality of a promise he does not yet have. In the reality of a God he knows is faithful and will deliver on the story that he promises to write. One more thing. How does this episode in David's life end? Well, how did it begin? It began in chapter 10 with with David doing the job God called him to do, taking on the mission of creating a secure environment for his people by leading him into battle against enemies that were trying to claim their land. David had won the first part of that battle against the Arameans, remember? And then winter set in. And in springtime, when king's job is to go back to war, David got stuck on this costly detour. Listen to how this David and Bathsheba detour ends. God has come to him through Nathan the prophet. Now God comes to him through Joab, David's army general, who David had co-opted for his dirt. Joab steps up. Verse 26 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. And it goes on to record how David steps up and leads. And once again, we are finally back. In the groove. Step number four, re-engage in mission. David, it's time to get back on the horse and do the work I've called you to do. Stop sulking, stop fearing, and stop worrying. I still have work for you to do. For several summers during my college years, I, I worked for my father as a steel worker, crane operator, welder, building sawmills. Although the workplace uh, safety movement had made significant strides, it was, it was not nearly there yet. I was doing a task about 20 to 25 feet in the air, in a precarious position, and I lost my grip and fell a good 20 feet. Very fortunately, I fell in the one little space where there were no objects that would impair me, just a nice, soft pile of gravel. And I was able to roll when I hit the bob, and I stood up. And before I had time to process what happened, my father concluded that because I stood up, it was all good. And the first words that came out of his mouth were, quick, get up there, get back up there right away. And before I could open my mouth to protest, he said, if you don't get back on the horse right away, you may never get back on. It's probably what his father, or more likely his older brother, had told him on the farm. I never did figure out whether That was boss dad talking. Let's not waste time on feeling stuff. Let's get this job done. Whether it was guilty feeling dad talking, he knew that I fell because he had not held tightly enough to the rope as I climbed the wall, hanging from a crane, and a wind had whipped up and swung the wall. He let go of the rope, and I fell. Or whether this was father dad talking, fully knowing my fearful nature, giving me some common sense wisdom. Or what combination of those three it was. And I never asked him. Dad was not that kind of guy. But over the years, I have realized that there was quite a bit of father wisdom in that. Because I have a tendency to just fear, worry, give up, sit and sulk, and blame, and not get back into the game. There's a need to process. If we do it well, Recognize with openness, repent in brokenness so we can get back into the game as one who has been humbled, broken, but living with the hope of one who came to be broken for our sins and raised for our life and hope as one one whose final words were, it is finished. I have taken on the fullness of what you deserve, so you don't have to cover it up. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to portray that, that that's not the kind of guy I am. Why? To keep us down under his thumb? No. So we can be revived in hope and reengaged in the mission, fully present, fully alive, fully engaged. As you get ready this week for Easter, if, if you don't have a clear structure that you're going to work through to get ready in your heart and mind, Many of us do, and that's great, but if you don't, would you, would you do three things? Not separately, but, but woven together like a rope, three things. Number one, continue to work through the inventory from last week. You can get it on, online at erbc.ca slash inventory. Number two, besides that inventory, have these four steps that we talked about today and, and see if you can see which one you're stuck in and stuck on. And number three, reread Read and reread every day Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And read them in a way that you can hear from Jesus to you. His last words on the cross before he died, it is finished. Judgment is complete. Mercy is real. Grace, the forgiving, freeing, restoring, reviving, empowering grace of God rules for you, in you. And through you, fully here, fully alive, fully engaged. God bless you.